0: Welcome to The Therapist Collective, where we explore the depths of the human mind and heart. I'm your host, Josh Keller, and I'm thrilled to embark on this transformative journey with you. In a world that can often feel disconnected, our mission here at The Therapist Collective is to inspire, connect, and help you grow. Each episode is carefully designed space where we delve into the complexities of the therapist experience, offer guidance, insights, information, both personally and professionally. Whether you're seeking professional development, dealing with your own mindset challenges, or simply curious about how to build your career as a mental health provider, this podcast is for you. We believe that every individual has the power to create meaningful change in their lives, and together, we can unleash the immense potential that resides within us all. Throughout our journey, we'll be inviting experienced therapists, psychologists, and experts from various disciplines to share their wisdom, research, and perspectives. We'll explore a wide range of topics, including self-discovery, private practice startup, networking, mindfulness, continuing education, and so much more. But the Therapist Collective isn't just about expert advice. It's about the power of community. We'll be featuring stories of triumph, being real and authentic, and resilience from individuals like you who may have struggled through the labyrinth of life and emerged stronger on the other side. So, join us on this transformative journey of professional development as we navigate the realms of the mind and emotions, seeking growth, connection, and a deeper understanding of ourselves and others. Together, let's cultivate a community of compassionate providers, unleash our inner strength, and create a world where healing and growth are accessible to all. Hello, and thanks for joining us today on the Therapist Collective podcast. I'm really excited to have Daniel with me. Uh, Daniel is an LCSW who works in an inpatient psychiatric hospital as well as in private practice. He lives and works in Denver, Colorado. In 2009, he suffered a traumatic brain injury from an auto accident. Uh, he needed to have brain surgery and spent 17 days in the hospital, along with three months of outpatient physical therapy and 17 months of speech therapy. This directed him towards the health professions, and he found social work. Uh, his specialty areas in private practice are, are, of course, mental health, trauma, PTSD, and traumatic brain injuries. Daniel, thanks so much for being here with me today
1: thanks Josh. I appreciate the the space to kind of share my story with your listeners
0: yeah Thank sounds you. like it's been quite a journey
1: yeah it's been a it's been a long one and you know I wouldn't as most people kind of look back on those life-changing moments probably not want to change it either no yeah. you know even though even though it's rough right but, right
0: right hard know, to say that in the moment right you know in hindsight looking back it it's a little bit easier to say that was really formative. There was a lot, of, sure. a lot happening there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I just, I want to give you space to kind of share that story, whatever you mm-hmm. feel, you you know, you're comfortable with, with our listeners uh, yeah. hearing and, and, you know, in particular how it shaped you and, and your interest in being a mental health professional.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'll give a, I'll give a kind of a brief overview of the accident and then some of the injuries and in that recovery process, and then kind of get into mindset and, um, both in recovery as well as, you know, now as a mental health professional, right. And kind of working in this space and how that kind of sustains us. So, sure. yeah. um, yeah. So as you mentioned, July, 2009, I was in a car accident. Um, it was just a single, single roll, single car accident rollover. Um, so no other people were involved, um, uh, besides myself, I was a passenger and then it was actually my, my childhood next door neighbor was the driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know also giving giving him a shout out because if it wasn't for him and calling finding our cell phones and calling EMS and and also his mom who was a nurse or is a nurse um and told them that if i had a brain injury um that go- taking me to a small smaller like lower level trauma hospital probably wouldn't help right away and that i would need to go to a, a larger hospital and that's what they did probably saved my life. So big shout out to them. Um, Then needed to have brain surgery. So it has subdermal hematoma, which essentially is a brain bleed underneath the skull. And then I had a stroke in my left prefrontal lobe, fractured skull and uh, collapsed lung. So yeah, I spent 10 10 days in the ICU, 17, or I'm sorry, seven days in, in inpatient rehab and then after that, three months of physical therapy and then 17 months of speech therapy. So it's been a a long, a long road. And even even today I was just, or not today, but yesterday I was underneath my desk at work and you still have to be very careful of not hitting my head or something because yeah. you're a little, a little more prone to concussions after something like that. So um, having that awareness is crucial.
0: Wow. Wow. Even, even you know, 13, 14 years after Mm -hmm. still got to be careful like that
1: yeah i would say that my tolerance has grown quite a bit you know before it was even if i bumped my head on a cupboard door that was open i'd have a concussion and now you know i'm able to wrestle with my children and you know they can we can bump heads and i'm okay but i could i definitely can't do that repeatedly right
0: do you feel like people are just really cautious around you and, and trying to be ultra sensitive to that
1: um, I think people who understand we have, we have little ones that don't have that capacity yet. So, yeah. um, and then, you know, speaking of in recovery, right. For anyone that's in you know recovery from a TBI, typically you have to alter your lifestyles, right. So can't go snowboarding on the mountains anymore.
0: Wow. Or,
1: you know, playing pickup games in the, in the. In the park of basket for basketball or football, so but you find other ways to live out your values and and there's a lot of grace and a lot of acceptance that comes through that process, yeah. Or it can be forced upon you too. Sure.
0: Well, and I I'm just imagining, you know, just the internal work that that you had to to do in order Mm -hmm. to come to an acceptance of some of those things.
1: Yeah, it took a lot of time. I fought with it cuz I wanted to be who I was and I also wanted didn't want to be where I was, right? Yeah. Especially going into so so th- it, that summer July 2009 I was entering my senior year of high school. Yeah. Uh at that time so the first thing the doctors told me when I when they took me out of the co- of the of the coma was probably not going to graduate high school with your your cohort, right? Yeah. that you started with and I told them I would and I did. Wow. And, you know, I think, I think we all have, if we're in the mental health space or, you know, even outside of this space, like we all have those pivotal moments, whether it's, you know, intense, like a TBI recovery or life decisions, right. Where we can make those, make those maybe stubborn decisions. Sure. Right. And just kind of say, I'm going to do this. Hmm. Yeah
0: th- you know there's kind of a difference between being um, strong willed and strong willing. Mm-hmm. a reframe that we um, arrived at when when one of my children was younger because um, mm-hmm. we we have very determined uh, children and we didn't we didn't like that idea of strong willed and how that you know just kind of put some negativity on things. And so mm-hmm. we had to reframe it as strong willing because there's kind of like light and dark, you know, to both of those. And so,
1: right. Right. I mean, me even looking at like stubbornness or grit or, you know, because those, those qualities also tie into a very individual, individualistic culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we need to be an individual because nobody else is going to, essentially do our recovery process for us. Right. But yeah. we also need a support system <laughs> to encourage us, to keep us motivated, to just be there when, you know, stuff falls apart.
0: So did you find that um, your support network was, was trying to discourage you from pressing on with, with so much uh, and- you know, I don't know if aggression would be the right word or not, but yeah,
1: tenacity. Yeah, tenacity. um, I think they were cautious because yeah. they didn't want to see me take on too much. Yeah, right, and have it kind of implode, or have me implode. Oh, right, yeah. just, just <laughs> just um,
0: overwhelmed, and
1: yeah, and and just you know the kind of the some of the hallmarks of tbis right like difficulty with sleep impulsivity irritability aggression um hypersensitivity to noises and stimuli i mean all those things i went through yeah and my support system also took the brunt of that right, right. because they were there you know right
0: they're on the receiving end of all of that right. frustration and
1: exactly and then the guilt and you know shame that comes with that Mm -hmm. as well because they're just showing love and caring but when your brain is at that level it's hard to you don't those mental filters are either gone or severely impaired
0: yeah wow and so as you were working through all of that, you said that that's part of what led you to want to be in the, the helping profession. So talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that and just how, how your own experience shaped that, you yeah. know, that career decision.
1: I definitely had a team of, uh, you know, the med- the medical team at the hospital, right. That was there through everything. And then, the nursing staff on, on the inpatient unit, um, the physical therapist, the massage therapist, that even if he had a 15 minute break in his schedule, he would come in and help loosen up my neck uh, and the muscles around that region. Um, And a lot of it was tied to my speech therapist. So I had an incredible speech therapist and I was in the ICU. And then I can't remember if she left, the hospital, or if the she was just more tied to the ICU. I just don't remember those details. Um and then I had another speech therapist um that stuck with me for 17 months, right? And it was kind of like my my therapist, my, my like mental health therapist as well as my speech sure. therapist, right? Um, I mean, I would see I would spend, you know, an hour with her two to three times a week for 17 months. And that, that was where I was like, okay, I I know I'm going to, I'm going to, I know I'm going to land somewhere in here. I don't know where yet. Right. And then my sister in Wisconsin is actually, is actually a social worker.
0: Really? Uh,
1: Yeah. And then she was like, check out this profession. So I did. And I was like, okay, seems pretty cool. So, you know, signed up for the program was accepted And I was like, holy man, like people like going through going through these recovery phases from community mental health or inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations or whatever, whatever forms of recovery look like. Right. Like they all have their story. And now like I have a story that isn't exactly the same as them, but it's something I need to work on. Right. So then there's compassion and empathy. You know that person-centered connection yeah. um, that's so crucial inside the the mental health arena, and then from that, I graduated with my undergrad in social work. Worked for a year and a half or so, and I kind of was like, "Where do I go with this bachelor's degree?" Right, and then I was like, "Okay, I need—I really need a master's to do what I need to do." Mm-hmm. Um, to work in you know, medical or inpatient psych hospitals as a, as a licensed clinical social worker. And then also, you know, if I want to go private practice, like that opens a lot more doors. Yeah. So then yeah, 2016 I entered um, grad school or I applied for grad school the following year or the the previous year, excuse me, um, at the university of Denver here. So,
0: okay.
1: Yeah. Now, it's That's been kind of the- of the journey
0: that's exciting thanks so so let's talk just a little bit about mindset because you mentioned how um you know the challenges and having to have that tenacity i love that word um to get through that how do you feel like your mindset uh like how do you feel like you grew in your mindset as you were trying to overcome those challenges and 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 really what I'm, I'm curious how you feel like that's impacted your therapy that you provide and and, mm-hmm. and you know helping your your clients to to adopt a mindset that works for them as well
1: yeah it's a big question so i think that for what it's worth i grew up in a very rural area of wisconsin so it's very like kind of take care of yourself right and Mm -hmm. that has good and bad associated with it um definitely in the farming communities right and I grew up playing sports um through my sophomore year of high school so so I think some of that stuff started like forging some of that mentality right and then when I was in the the ICU um like the doctor's didn't know if I was going to have to relearn how to talk again just because of the area that I, I heard in my brain or injured, um, was the left temporal lobe. And that's a huge language center, um, for both auditory and, um, expressatory speech, um, or verbal speech. So there was that kind of question mark. Right. And then they are like, we don't know if you're going to have to relearn how to walk either. Really. So, I remember the first time I walked. It was, I I was push I was pushing a wheelchair for for like almost like support, right? And then I had two or three nurses around me with a gait belt on, right? And you know, going from a seventeen year old that's pretty high functioning, independent, to going to like not being able to do some of these things or wanting to take a shower, but needing a, needing a, a hospital staff to stand with you
0: mm-hmm.
1: really like it's humbling. It's also really invasive. Right. right. And then there was one moment I was in the inpatient um, rehab unit where every time I need to use the restroom, I had to call for the nurse and mm-hmm. call from the nurse and, it took a minute to come which they're busy like nothing against them and i was just like i need to figure out like how to do this right and i just had this like i don't know what it was like just like nervous system like sensation Mm -hmm. and i just put my fist down on the bed because i was sitting on the edge of the bed and i just pushed myself up myself and that was kind of like where it's like okay nobody's going to be doing this right like they're here to support you, but they can't force you to do, or to push, or to, you know, one of the, again, hallmarks of um, TBIs, which I forgot to mention is fatigue, right, so I would do an hour of physical therapy, and I need to take a three, four-hour nap, Wow. right, and, like, I could argue and say, no, I need to go to sleep, right, or I could also push, because nobody else is going to do that internal work, yeah, and that is something, then, that really comes into therapy that i'm providing, right? Like not saying i have to i'm pushing, right? everyone. But i also like know that i can give them skills, i can give them tools, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to be in the right spot to take recovery and run with it. Nobody's going to run with it for you.
0: Yeah. And so in those moments where you felt like I don't know if you if you felt like you Uh, should give up or if that was ever an option
1: for you I don't know if giving up was an option but there were definitely moments where I was like I can't do this Mm -hmm. like we're, we're hitting that red line yeah you know the insomnia at night like I would I knew because of how fast my thoughts were going and I don't know why I was It wasn't paranoia as I was falling asleep, but I don't know what it was about going to sleep at night. I could fall asleep in the middle of the day within 20, 30 minutes, right? Hmm. But like when it came to nighttime, I knew if I wanted to go to bed at 10, I'd have to lay down at 8. Wow. You know, just tossing, turning, crying because I couldn't fall asleep, and then also like realizing now, like I do a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's like the more you want something, the less you have it, right? Right. <laughs> so, so that, so that I'm like, well, looking back, I was like, oh, I just needed to relax a little bit, yeah. right? But in the moment, I'm just you just amp yourself up.
0: You can't just tell yourself to relax. Yeah. Yeah. So did you learn how to work through those things or did it just kind of happen because you said, I, I can't keep carrying on like this. Like did, did, were you trained in some of these skills were there people helping you? How did, how did all that play out for you?
1: Yeah. I think all, all are valid answers. So melatonin really helped me for mm-hmm. sleep Um working with a therapist myself helped um, release some of that bottled up energy that was stored, right? Whether it be guilt, shame, anger, right? Whatever it might be. And then also as I, as, as some of my physical capabilities slowly started coming back, I was able to start working out again. And that was a big outlet, right? And not only that, but I was working out with the person that I was in the car accident with. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Um, because I, him and I still talk on the anniversaries every year. You know, we, we message each other. Um, I, I message my speech therapist too, <laughs> that, that helped me a lot. Um, so, so I think, I think having that connection and having that outlet and, or those various outlets, right, help kind of release some of that buildup where I was okay, able to fall asleep. And yeah. now, excuse me, now to this day, it's not really a challenge unless there's like high levels of stress yeah so
0: when it comes to your recovery what what would you say was most difficult for you
1: I think the identity shifts and the grief and loss that accompany that mm. yeah so you know going into the senior year of high school you want to hang out with friends you want to go to bonfires or you know late night parties and i'm in bed by 7 30 right and then waking up and going to school monday and you hear all these stories right or not being able to work so when i was in the accident i was working a part-time job but i couldn't do that anymore yeah right i didn't have the stamina the physical stamina the mental stamina to to hold that um also realizing that like when I was in the accident, I was at the, so my school, again, support system was totally amazing for, in terms of a high school and how they kind of supported me. And they're like, if you need to go part-time, half-time, whatever. Right. So I literally graduated with the bare minimum because I went my first semester out of the accident that fall, I did only two half days and we were on the block schedule mm-hmm. um, at at my high school, so it was literally two classes a day, but I would come home and take a two or three hour nap or an hour nap, depending on what my body needed. And then the second semester, I was able to do a full day and a half day. So, you know, slowly building up that tolerance. Um, but that's also hard, right? Like your friends are at school, you want to be with them. You want to be in the gym or doing what they're doing and you can't, right? Yeah well and at a
0: time <clears throat> at a time in in I mean, most teenagers at that age are wanting greater levels of independence mm-hmm. and it just dramatically shifted to greater levels of dependence yeah where you're having to recognize your limitations and
1: mm-hmm. no you're not invincible as, as adolescents and teenagers feel like they are sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah right. so that,
0: that identity shift makes sense yeah.
1: I mean, going from needing, you know, not having anyone watching you to, you know, in the hospital I mentioned, but then also like my family would rotate weeks or two week chunks off to be mm-hmm. at home with me. Wow. Just in case I would seize or needed help. And then also because of the severity of my accident, the they took my license. So mm-hmm. I couldn't drive anymore. Right. right. And it's a huge freedom thing for a lot of teenagers. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, to have that and then get it taken away. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I had to retake the drive this physical driver's test, not the not the classes, like three or four months after Mm -hmm. the accident, because they just needed to monitor me. So
0: yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm kind of curious if if you experience any lingering effects Mm -hmm. day to day.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, outside of like, I'm always very aware of my head, right? <laughs> I don't think that will that hyper awareness will go anywhere. It's not hyper vigilance, but it's just like knowing what's around. Yeah. Um. In terms of lasting impacts, I will say sometimes I notice my cognition or my cognitive abilities do do tend to drop in terms of. A, my cognitive abilities drop if I go at least like two or three days with this, like two or three hours of sleep, right? So, like if a family member is sick or something like that and we need to be there, right? Little kids get sick and they're very needy, right? Or they're puking yeah. on rugs or the floor or whatever it is. And you know, those times, if if you get two or three days of those like consistent, I can notice like I feel a little foggy, right? but then i can but then i can take a rest or take a nap and you know that that shift comes back
0: yeah yeah so it sounds like there's there's just some mental fatigue that kind of accompanies that that physical fatigue
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and that's something i just gotta deal with right I can't I can't get rid of it just because I don't want it so I just really try to ensure that I get adequate amounts of sleep and kind of stay mm. regulated in terms of lifestyle and balanced in terms of you know for treatment especially when it comes to like mental health therapy is not always just mental health therapy it's like right. if, if your sleep cycle's off like that's a huge component right if oh, you sure. if your diet and nutrition's off like that's a huge component right if you're not having some level of physical activity, like that's a huge component, right? Yeah. So, so looking at it from a holistic perspective, right. And that's what, that's what we need to, we we should bring to therapy as well as not just this lens of the yeah. mental health.
0: I'm so glad you said that. Cause I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't prescribe sleep, but I'll, that's one of the questions that I ask you know, during my intake is how much sleep do you get? Because <laughs> I know how I feel when I'm better rested. And I know the impact that that has on my family, right? I've got teen daughters who will ask me, you know, if I need to take a nap sometimes because I'm maybe being a grouch or something like that. (laughs) You know, over time, if we're not taking care of our bodies, obviously that's going to affect things. Uh, I've got a guest coming on um, later this month who's going to talk about nutrition and things like that as it pertains to mental health. So yeah, definitely related to all of that. And, yeah. and obviously you, you have, you have a, a perspective that's that's grounded in experience mm-hmm. for that as you work with people who, you know, have experienced um, traumatic brain injury and, and, and things like that. So speak to that a little bit when it comes to how your experience shapes the therapy that you provide. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you've got some very unique, um, you know, perspectives and experiences to bring into that. do you find that showing up for
1: you good question i typically don't self-disclose my even though it's on my website not everyone reads the website right
0: yeah
1: uh and not everyone listens to the podcast episodes either right um so i don't disclose that i have a tbi um i'll obviously know pretty quickly because they'll a client will self-disclose if they have one, you know. Okay. Pretty, you know, usually in the first session or two. Yeah. And I only bring I I only bring it up directly if there needs to be a space created to like hold hope that things can hope shift. is that what you said hold hold hope yeah, yeah for things that can shift and get better down the road right and again every every person every TBI is unique and not everyone will yeah but can we can we shift can we shift things in in that person's life just one to two degrees it doesn't have to be 180 degrees or 360 degrees but even one or two right and we can we can look at and identify people's value systems and really pursue those values despite you know i've seen people that are huge into physical fitness but they're but they they can't walk right but mm-hmm. they still go to the gym yeah they still work out and they still socialize in the gym right so and it's finding those sometimes very very small minute things that we can do to pursue those values if it's like self-growth and a learner right a lifelong learner it's like how can you find ways to to read a book if you can't turn the pages right right um maybe shifting to audiobooks right whatever it might be yeah. like those those are those are kind of just examples that are coming to me right um so finding i think those those avenues is a lot of what we do in therapy yeah. and then also if there's guilt shame you know especially inappropriate levels then we can target some of those things with emdr and yeah so i
0: i love that phrase holding hope and I'm curious what you notice in session Mm -hmm. that that makes you realize this is difficult for them to hold hope. Like they're Mm -hmm. they're losing, they're slipping, or you know, Mm -hmm. however you want to term that. What what do you see that makes you say, okay, this person's really Mm -hmm. needing something to cling to right now?
1: Mm. It's a a good question because I don't know if it's if it's always something you can see okay but it's more of like what is your co-regulation in your nervous system picking up on
0: what is yours as the therapist
1: yeah okay
0: tell me about that
1: coming from like w- what do you feel from their nervous system right because we we co-regulate one another and that's a lot of what therapy is right and that's why sometimes people just sitting with a person when you're having an anxiety attack can help calm them down yeah right you don't have to talk, right? Your nervous systems. I think, And I think that's one of the areas like our brain and our nervous systems, right? Are some of the areas that we still don't really understand in our bodies. I mean, what's the example I'm trying to think of? You know, yeah.
0: So, so I was doing a, a training with the Gottman Institute recently mm-hmm. and they were talking about, um, oh, it wasn't Gottman. It was the emotion focused therapy. Mm -hmm. And the, the video was of a a woman going in for an MRI Mm -hmm. and they had some electrodes connected and they were measuring her brain activity and she was nervous and scared. And, you know, the, the diagram was lighting up, you know, and all the centers that indicated that, and then they brought her husband in and he just stood there and, and talked with her where she could hear him. I don't know if he was actually there, but um, just hearing his voice soothed some of that, right? And so Mm. there was that connection that actually, you know, they were able to measure, you know, his presence affected her ability to Mm -hmm. self-soothe and calm down and work through it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the the example I was, I was kind of looking at it or think, trying to think of is like when we You know, what is our orientation response, right? When we see stress or perceive stress or a Mm -hmm. threat, right? Like our nervous system is picking up on that before we cognitively think about it. And and that's where that attunement comes in, right? Is that felt sense Mm -hmm. of that person's nervous system is either hyper or hypo aroused right and how do I regulate that yeah so so depending on where they're at I may disclose right but that also leaves opportunity maybe I won't disclose right away right maybe I'll work on skill building first I mean EMDR I mean all of phase two of EMDR is you know self-regulation skills or Mm -hmm. you know regulating your nervous system so so i think those skills are very important to teach right but that therapeutic relationship that attunement to your client is also a huge intervention that i think sometimes therapists may lose sight of
0: yeah i think sometimes those those little micro skills that we don't think of just become such a part of of our presence and how we are in the room there's it's like it's working without us knowing that it's working uh, which is great right. because it means that we've, we've kind of settled into a, a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like muscle memory that just happens mm-hmm. uh, you, when you're not in therapy and you start using those skills, you know, and people know you're a therapist. They're like, you're doing it. You're doing the therapy thing. Right. Right. And, and I, I think that's a good thing. That's something that I've tried to help my family to, to realize is that this is, this has become wired in right this is yeah it's kind of a default now
1: in our society in our society does not teach a lot of it no. right it, it does not teach emotional intelligence it does not teach those regulation skills yeah and a you know that can be great for therapists because that's where we come in right? right but b how many you know i don't want to say not altercation isn't the right word but mm-hmm. how many interpersonal challenges or work work challenges could also you know not even occur if people could stay regulated yeah right or road rage or whatever it might be okay. so so yeah so I, I think i think there's like that societal impact too of you never know who you're who you're going to impact through the skills that you've taught this client right uh-huh. Um, and that's something one of my supervisors, because I lived, I finished my undergrad at Boise State, um, and then one of my supervisors out there, um, while I was working before I started grad school, um, she, she asked me a question in supervision about like art, how many like do you know Helen Keller, and I was like, yeah, I've heard of her, right? Like, who hasn't really? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how many people know of like who her teacher was? Right. But, she, but her teacher started that whole process, right? Yeah. And it's like we lose sight of like, like those initial beginnings, and we can have you know huge life life-changing impacts on clients, right? But we never know what those clients then go and do. Right. right? Who they touch, or if they become a therapist themselves 15, 20 years later. So
0: sure and that you know that was your experience is mm-hmm. you know because of the um the treatment that you received and how meaningful it was for you here you are now writing mm-hmm. yourself and you know there may be somebody else that has a tbi who you know received therapy from from daniel and is like man i really want to i want to I do that and so you know 10 years from now they may be on my podcast sharing about that right
1: <laughs> that would be wild that would be awesome yeah we could
0: we could see if we can make that happen somehow so uh do you ever get triggered in therapy when you're talking with people who who have uh traumatic brain injuries of their own
1: mm-hmm. i wouldn't say triggered is the right word I would say sometimes certain <clears throat> certain cues of the story will resonate with me, mm-hmm. certain aspects, right? And that's you know also why we need we as therapists need to take care of ourselves. Right. Right, because that vicarious trauma is real. Yeah. Right. And even if we've already dealt with it, it doesn't mean like just because we've dealt with our history doesn't mean that memories don't come up. Yeah not, not that it's like negative or anything, but it still can be powerful. Sure. You know, so taking that space, you know, whatever that, whatever that might look like or doing something, I think self-care gets a, gets a bad rap because it's so repeated, but really, really trying to find those things that, that work for work for you. So you can show up rejuvenated. If it's a mental health day from work, if it's, you know, gardening, time alone in nature, whatever it might be like, those things work for me. Right, but what works for me might not work for everyone. Right, right. And
0: so, how do you notice that that's that's something that you need for yourself?
1: I watch, I pay attention to my nervous system. Yeah, if I if I feel my nervous system shift, then I'm like, okay, make a note of that. Yeah. Right.
0: What Maybe is that I, like for you? Like, I know that that sounds like you're really in touch with, with what's happening, but what are you, what are you paying attention to that mm-hmm. indicator that your nervous system is, is shifting?
1: So maybe I have like a, an urge to move in my chair, mm-hmm. right? Like shift my body posture. Um, <clears throat> do I notice my body language going from open to closed, um, Or right. Like, are you glancing at the clock more right like okay when's this gonna be over like i need to escape i need to avoid this right like tapping into some of those i mean avoidance and escape are functional right they they work well that's why we do them yeah typically in the short term long term not so much so so just paying attention to those those cues when they arise and those shifts in your body
0: yeah
1: is how I, how I watch it.
0: And, and it sounds like you you look at those things as feedback for yourself, that mm-hmm. there's some something that's needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Earlier, yeah. earlier you mentioned, you, know, you, you said the word felt sense, and I'm curious if you've ever heard of Eugene Gendlin's focusing. Mm-hmm. No, okay. He talks about that um, when we're feeling stuck. Um, focusing is a, a mindfulness strategy where if, if you're struggling to figure out what it is that you're stuck on, mm-hmm. uh, he talks about paying attention to that felt sense within you. And that there's, you know, for a lot of people, there's like a tightness in their chest or their, their throat feels enclosed or there's like a weight on them, right? So they, they describe that, that feeling and, and he calls that a felt sense. And, and when you start exploring that and get curious about what that's about, mm-hmm. um, it opens up doors for your body to kind of communicate back to you, you know, what's going on. So when you get curious about it, what's that about? And you start saying, was well, is it about this? Is it about this? When you stumble on it, that that felt sense will shift. And that's that, ah, that aha moment. Like, that's what that's about right and so it's it's kind of neat how how our body it's kind of like the check engine light that indicates there's something Mm -hmm. going on under the hood let's pop that thing up and explore what's going on and Mm -hmm. it sounds like you've you've learned how to attune to that
1: yeah and i think that also links back to what we what we just spoke about right like our society does not teach that awareness right right it's go 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 like what's next? What next? What's next? But it's like, how do I slow down?
0: Yeah.
1: And then we have, you know, social media. We have all these, all these different things. I'm not like bashing social media. Yeah. Like, sure. You know, it has its purpose and its uses, but it's also a huge avoidance or escape tool, right? So we don't have to feel stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's there's a shift happening that I see in society when it comes to mental health in general. I feel like you know the the efforts to destigmatize it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, social media has a huge impact on that. But um, I'm I'm kind of excited to see how maybe that that shift that I'm I'm seeing, you know, creates this greater awareness of self, and mm-hmm. instead of instead of blaming other people for being triggered, like you triggered me, you're responsible for not triggering me how when people are are triggered to use that kind of buzz phrase that's a clue to them that there's some some work that needs to be done within them instead mm-hmm. of just kind of passing that off on to other people to, to be responsible 100 percent
1: yeah so
0: well daniel this has been so much fun
1: yeah I appreciate it. Yes, um, thank you for having me on
0: yeah, how can people get in touch with you? I don't. Do you offer telehealth or just in the yep. Denver area? If somebody sure. was interested, what would that look like?
1: Yeah, so I'm, so I'm only licensed in the state of Colorado, so I can do virtual, you know, throughout the state. Um, I do have in-person sessions available on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, I can do virtual on Saturdays and Sundays too. But um, then I can also do coaching and stuff outside of, outside the state and yeah. you know, especially around on that TBI piece. So, um, yeah. doing some, doing some family, some family coaching, cause it's, a again, it takes a village to, to right. walk this path of recovery. So,
0: um, you know, and if there were other therapists who, you know, have similar backgrounds or who dealt with their own TBIs, would that be okay if they reached out to you to just yeah. kind of pick your brain Stand on back. what works for you?
1: Yeah, for sure. 100%. So my my website, I I think you're going to put it in the show notes. Is just revitalizementalhealth.com. Instagram is at revitalize underscore mental health. And then we have a Facebook page and you can submit a form on my website and usually 48 hours, depending on the weekend or the holiday, I'll reach out.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Daniel. I wish you the best and thank
1: you so much, Josh, for the space to share.
0: Thank you for joining us today on The Therapist Collective. We hope this episode has ignited a spark within you and left you with newfound inspiration, connection, and a sense of growth. Remember, the journey of professional discovery is an ongoing one. Take the insights and wisdom you've gained here and apply them to your life and career. Embrace the power of vulnerability, seek support when needed, and continue to cultivate a deep understanding of yourself and others. We'd love to hear from you, our incredible listeners. Share your thoughts, reflections, and stories with us through our website and social media platforms. Your experiences and insights can help create a ripple effect of transformation in our community. And finally, remember that growth is a collective endeavor. Together, we can create a world where mental health is prioritized, where empathy and understanding are the foundation of our interactions, and where each individual is empowered to embrace their true potential. Thank you for being part of the Therapist Collective. Until we meet again, continue to inspire, connect, and grow.